I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12. And these guys have come forward and they have Bibles in hand, as you see, as we do each week. And I say turn to a passage, and many of you do. And then we say, if you don't have a Bible, these guys have some. So I'm pointing that out because it's my observation, sometimes from up here, that there are people who don't have a Bible. And we don't want that to be the case for anybody. So I've asked these guys to wait for a second and to encourage you, if you don't have a Bible in front of you, to then get their attention as they go back. They'll give you one of those. It's marked for you at the passage this week and every week at Hebrews chapter 12. Some of you use a device. I understand that. So if you're using your device, it's between you and the Lord as to whether or not you're checking scores. (laughs) And so we're not going to snoop around on that. But in all seriousness, everybody needs to have a Bible today, next week, every week. Bring it with you. Open it up when we go to God's Word, okay? So if you need a Bible, get these brothers' attention as they make their way to the back. Hebrews chapter 12. It was 20 years ago this year that John Piper preached a now famous sermon to 40,000 young people who had gathered outdoors at a youth conference. The entire message was just under 40 minutes, but it's seven of those minutes that made that sermon famous. In an excerpt of those seven minutes, Piper said this, You don't have to know a lot of things for your life to make a lasting difference in the world. You don't have to be smart or good-looking or from a good family. You just have to know a few basic, glorious, majestic, obvious, unchanging, eternal things and be gripped by them and be willing to lay down your life for them. He goes on to say, three weeks ago, we got news at our church that Ruby Eliason and Laura Edwards were killed in Cameroon. Ruby Eliason, over 80 single all her life, a nurse poured her life out for one thing, to make Jesus Christ known among the sick and the poor in the hardest and most unreached places. Laura Edwards, a medical doctor in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area, and also in her and, and in her retirement, she partnered up with Ruby. She was also pushing 80 years old and going from village to village in Cameroon. The brakes gave way, and over a cliff they went, and they're dead instantly. And he says, I asked the people at my church, is this a tragedy? Two women, one in her 80s, the other almost there, whose whole lives were devoted to one idea. Jesus Christ magnified among the poor and the sick in the hardest places. And 20 years after most of their American counterparts had begun to throw their lives away on trivialities in Florida and Arizona, these two women fly into eternity due to an instantaneous death. And is this a tragedy, he asked those 40,000 young people? It's not a tragedy, he said. And then he said, I'll read you what a tragedy is. And he pulled out a page from Reader's Digest and he read it to them. Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. And now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. That's a tragedy, he told the crowd. And there are people in this country that are spending billions of dollars to get you to buy it. And I get, he said, 40 minutes to plead with you, don't buy it. With all my heart, I plead with you, don't buy that dream. When you stand before the creator of the universe to give an account of what you did with the last chapter of your life, you don't want it to be, here it is, Lord, my shell collection. And I've got a good golf swing. And look at my boat. So who are your heroes? Who are your role models? 
To whom do you look to set goals and priorities for your life, whether you're a teenager or a young adult or in midlife or in retirement? Is it what the world tells you about the good life? Or what God tells you is truly living? Let's bow now and ask God to help us as we consider these important thoughts. Father, thank you that we're here because it's because of you that we're here. And now, Lord, we ask you to arrest our attention upon matters of eternal truth that impact us now, that require from us a response, an affirmative response, taking action in a Godward direction. We ask you, Lord, to accomplish that as only you can. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, most of you know that we normally begin our service with a few more songs and a scripture reading before we get to the sermon. But I ask the musicians for more time for this final message in the beginning of this New Year series that we titled Body Life 2020 vision. Throughout the month of January in this series, we've sought to, at the start of the new year, call our church to not only what we were made for as people in general, but what we've been remade for as people of God. And in the first message in this series, we saw that the Bible commends planning and administration of our plans in God's church in order to carry out his mission. And I read for you at that time, as I do every year at the beginning of the year, our church's 10-year plan on which we have seven years to go. And I noted that in order to accomplish those ambitious but God-honoring plans, it's going to require all of God's people contributing their gifts and abilities to it. Now, to our guests today, those of you that may be here for the first time, today's message is different from the norm, as has been this entire short series. But we think it's important to remind ourselves of our calling to God's mission in His church and the role that each of us is to play within it. Next week, we'll resume our series in the book of Revelation, and I encourage you to come back. I hope that you will. So to whom do you look for a model regarding your values and priorities? The world will tell you to waste your life on ultimately meaningless activities. But God has a different set of role models for his people. I've asked you to turn to Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Now that verse begins with the word therefore, pointing us back to what precedes. What that verse, chapter 12 and verse 1 says, is based on what was said prior to it. And what's prior to it is chapter 11, known to many of us as Faith's Hall of Fame. Because chapter 11 lists numerous people who in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, live for God because of their genuine belief in Him. So chapter 11 says, for instance, if you'll look at that, beginning in verse 7, Chapter 11 and verse 7, by faith Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By faith, he, by faith he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. By faith Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. And in verse 22, it goes on to say, of chapter 11, By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. 
He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt. Not fearing the king's anger, he persevered because he saw him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and the application of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land, but when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the army had marched around them for seven days. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith. Yet none of them received what had been promised since God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Over and over, by faith, they acted. By faith, they did. And I remind you that in your New Testament, the word faith is the word believe or belief. So by believing... By believing specifically who God is, what God's promises are, that those promises and the character of God are better than any other thing that competes for their allegiance. By believing all of that, they did all that stuff. Therefore, chapter 12, as we live our lives today, we should be motivated By the lives of those who have gone before. Since verse 1 says, we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race that's marked out for us. So there's that picture of all of those people in faith's hall of fame. Because they believed God. Because they believed his character. Because they believed his promises. And because they believed all of that was better. They did all of those things, but ultimately behind all that they did was the Lord Jesus. And that's why verse 2 says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. So I say in your outline, every week we have inserted in your program an outline. If you don't have that out, just like having your Bible open, Have the outline out. Follow along. And we say, first of all, Jesus provides motivation that should lead us to action. We'll see how Jesus is the ultimate motivation for how we should live at the end of our time. But for now, what role do these heroes of faith in chapter 11 play for us? Verse 1 says, we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. So they are witnesses, but does that mean, as many have thought over the years, that they are in heaven now witnessing us, that they are looking at us? And the answer is no for two reasons. When it says we have this great cloud of witnesses, referring back to the people mentioned in chapter 11, it's not saying that they're looking down on us for two reasons. One, that would violate the bliss that's promised in heaven. When you go to heaven, you don't want to be looking back down on earth. And seeing all of the fallenness and all of the sin and all of the travail. Secondly, that word witnesses is the same word that's translated in your Bible, testimonies. You could and should translate that. Since we are surrounded by such a great 
company of testimonies. So, so one commentator said the Old Testament saints are referred to not as spectators of us, but as witnesses in Scripture. That is, the writer of Hebrews has just given us the 40 verses in chapter 11 in which he's talked about the works of faith which those great men and women have done. In that case, the Old Testament saints are witnesses in Scripture to faith, to believing. And so they are witnesses to us. It's not what we see. It's, it is what we see in them, not what they see in us. So what do we see in them? The work of Christ in their lives. The work of God in their lives. And friends, this is the same Christ who was at work in them that is at work in you and me. The next chapter, Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 8 says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that's why the end of verse 1 then, based upon all that, based upon what the example, the model of others and Christ's work in them, end of verse 1 says, so let us now run our race with perseverance, the race that's marked out for each of us. Now we've got to carry that mantle. Now we do that. And the Bible speaks over and over again about the Christian life as being a race that's to be entered, participated in, run, and the finish line crossed. For example, Jesus said, The one who received the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it, making it unfruitful. That is, we're going to see these passages that talk about the the race itself, but Jesus is saying there are people who they profess faith and they get excited about the faith, but then the worries of this life the deceitfulness of wealth choke out their enthusiasm. Sidelines them so that they're no longer fruitful. The Bible says this in 1 Corinthians 7, those who buy something should live as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of this world should live as if not engrossed in them for this present, for the world in its present form is passing away. So endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer. Similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown unless he competes according to the rules. So 1 Corinthians 9 run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. We do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I, Paul, who wrote that, do not run like a man running aimlessly. The same Paul wrote elsewhere. On the day of Christ, I want it to be that I did not run or labor for nothing. In the next chapter, he says, forgetting what is behind, straining toward what's ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize. And then when he comes to the end of his life, and he's only a short time from being executed because he's a minister for the Lord Jesus Christ, he says this famously in the last chapter of the last book that Paul would write. I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. The word used to describe this race in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1 is the word from which we get our English word agony. Agonizo. I am called, you are called, to the race, to the often difficult race that is the Christian life. The examples of those in chapter 11, in and through whom Christ worked, and especially the example of the Lord Jesus himself should motivate us to, as it says in verse 1, to run with perseverance. But friends, at the beginning of this new year, what's going to keep us from doing that? It's very clear we're called to it, isn't it? 
It's very clear that we're called to run the race. But what's going to keep us from doing that? Verse 1 tells us. In your outline I say, we need to be motivated to remove hindrances. Verse 1 says, we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, so let us throw off everything that hinders. Everything that hinders. Every weight that would keep us from participating fully and efficiently. Put that aside, whatever it is. The Greek word that's translated everything that hinders is this word, onkos. We get our English word oncology from it. An oncologist is a doctor who deals with cancer. Let us put aside every cancer. Let us put aside every growth, every mass, everything that is unnecessary to the health of our race. Anything that weighs you down for the purposes of the race, get rid of it. Lay it aside. Throw it off. Now notice this, importantly. These unnecessary things are not always sinful things. As a matter of fact, verse 1 makes a distinction between throwing off the things that hinder, and it says, and the sin. So you've got these things that weigh you down that are not necessarily sinful, and then you've got a category of sinful things that also keep you from running the race. You've got both. You've got the weights. They're not necessarily wrong. They're just not best. And they're holding you back. And then you've got the sin. Now, dear flock, some of us are not running our race well. And it's because of the weight that we've allowed to keep us from it or slow us in it. Now, I'm going to spend the bulk of our time on these next two points in your outline. The first of which is this necessity to remove hindrances to our Christian lives. To remove the weights, the unnecessary things that keep us from fully living for and serving the Lord. Now, believe it or not, I know a little bit about running. <laughs> Thank you for laughing. I... I know mostly intellectually now what I once knew by experience, but I still remember running cross-country in high school. The meets were three miles long. Half the time they were at the opposing school. They weren't run on a track. Most of the schools didn't have a track, but rather you were on a course designed by the school that often took you through town or through the woods or a combination. So when you would first arrive at that other school, you'd get a quick explanation, no time for a three-mile walkthrough, regarding the layout of the course. As you might imagine, it was to the home team's advantage to make that route as circuitous and complicated as possible, and they always did. Now, of course, they knew the route because they practiced on it every day, but the 10-minute or so explanation was pretty much useless to us. And in addition to that, there were obstacles on the course, known to the home team, but only experienced by the visitors. I recall one place in which the course had a 90-degree turn, and after making that turn, you immediately encountered a large boulder that you instinctively had to jump or you'd run into it. In addition to that, teams would register large numbers of people who were not serious runners. And they wouldn't even usually finish the race, but they were there simply to get in your way. So you're on a course you don't know with instructions given by someone who does not have your best interests at heart with obstacles you know nothing about. That was a cross-country meet when away from home. But the good news is the Christian race is a home meet. The course is one which is, according to verse 1, marked out for us. It's marked out for you personally, marked out for me personally. The instructions on how and where to run are given by the one who has your interests in his loving heart. The hazards on the course are known completely to him. They're not designed to trip you up, but to make you stronger for the race. 
He is with you. He's gone before you. He will bring you safely to the finish. But hear this, only if you run and run in the manner and direction that he's marked out. Far too many professing followers of Jesus have him simply as their ticket to heaven and not their map through life. We're just biding our time, going through the motions until the race ends. And for others, you started well, but now not so much. When you started, you were stoked, you were geeked. Whatever descriptor you want to use. You came to Christ, you were thrilled when you were told you're on a team. And we, the pastor coaches, told you to get in the race and you did it with enthusiasm. But you've since allowed other things to weigh you down, move you off track. If you're even on it, you're barely moving forward. Thanks be to God, the vast majority of those here have been and are running hard. You get tired sometimes, but you run. You know that you simply have to put one foot out in front of the other, follow the course Jesus has laid out, And you'll make it to the finish line seeing his smile of of approval as you break the tape. Others of you are wondering what I'm talking about. Tired. Difficult. What's to make you tired as it relates to serving the Lord, as it relates to church? I mean, I get tired at home and at work and I have difficulty at those. But church life's really easy. I come, I sit, I listen, I get some coffee, I talk to some folks if they're lucky. And then I go home. What's so hard about that? Now let me issue a disclaimer here before I start meddling. There are exceptions to everything I'm going to say now about hindrances to living for and serving the Lord. So please understand that I know that. There are those who have family situations that involve the care of a parent or grandparent. Those in our congregation who have physical limitations, those who are spiritually single, that is, you're married, but you are the spiritual leader in your home. Perhaps your spouse is not a Christian. That places some limitations on how you can serve. So, of course, as I talk about removing hindrances, weight from our lives, I'm not talking about those that are imposed on you through no fault of your own, but those that you've chosen and need to remove. The first of those, is an unwillingness to get in the race at all. To get in and use what God has given you to serve Him in His work, in His mission. That starts with something I've been talking about the last few weeks, and that's membership. Two weeks ago, we had a message on membership. And I proved from the Bible, unequivocally, Clearly, indisputably, that God expects his people to commit themselves to a body of believers to use what he has given together to move his work forward. Now, if you were not here for that message, I strongly urge you, January 12th, our messages are all on our website. I encourage you to listen to that. Now, I'm putting unwillingness to commit to the church under hindrances, weights, rather than the next point, which is about what verse 1 says, sin that keeps us from moving forward. I'm putting it here rather than there because I want to take a charitable perspective. I assume the reason those of you who haven't done that have not done so is because you didn't know. And if you're not told, then you won't know. But you were told two weeks ago, listen to that. And further, To be fair to those who believe church is just something you attend rather than a community of faith that God brings together to further his work. Those of you who have come to believe that have come by it honestly. Because evangelical church life promotes spectating and attending over membership and commitment. In the mid-1980s, there was a runaway best-selling book, unfortunately, in Christian circles called The Purpose Driven Church by Rick Warren. 
And in that book, Rick Warren laid out uh, five concentric circles for people in or related to any given church. You see on the screen there that he said there's the community. That's the largest circle. That's the community around us. It's made up of everyone you have the potential to reach, he says, on a given Sunday. They live near your church. And then there's the the crowd, he says. The crowd consists of all the people who attend your church on a regular basis. You've got regular people who attend your church. They're part of what he calls the crowd. Then there's the congregation. That includes everyone who attends and has become a member. They attend regularly. They give regularly. They support the vision and values of your church. But then There's this other group within that. They're the committed people. And they are the people who are growing in their relationship with Jesus and establishing the habits and disciplines of a disciple. They're part of the committed. Now, just stop there for a minute. So you've got to go all the way to that. You know, you can be a member of the congregation, a member of the congregation, but not be a committed disciple. That's a whole second, another category, says he. And then finally, there's the core. Among the committed are people who are involved and they serve others through the ministries of the church. So you can be a member of the congregation. You don't need to, you don't need to be committed to growing in your walk with the Lord. And you certainly don't need to be committed to, that's a small core group of people that actually serve. I hope you guys readily see that there's a problem here. And there's a particular problem. If people come to believe you can stay in anything but being a core committed disciple of Jesus. And if we give that impression by failing to do what I've been doing these last few weeks and doing what I'm doing today, then it's on us. It's on me. Here's a biblical view of that. You're either the crowd or you're the congregation. You're either an attender or you're a member. And if you're a member, you're committed to growing in Jesus. And you're committed to serving him. But see, evangelicalism allows people to play church. But God doesn't. And we pastors will be held accountable if we do. The size of the church is not the size of the crowd. Make no mistake, if you've not committed yourself to the Lord's work, you are violating what the Lord says, and you're part of the crowd, and that is not a permanent status. Now, it is a temporary status. If you're someone looking for a church, you've moved to the area, or your church is somehow defected from truth or a biblical philosophy of ministry. There are all kinds of reasons where somebody here today might have moved from one place to another. You're looking for a church. Or you're somebody who's new to all of this. You're not a Christian. You're part of the crowd. I'm glad you're part of the crowd. So there, and, and you need to be stay part of the crowd until you understand that this is the place that God would have you to join and serve. Or if you're not a Christian, you come to the Lord Jesus and then you commit yourself to following him as his disciple. So there is... That crowd, but notice it's smaller, a lot smaller. And it should be temporary. You don't remain part of the crowd as a permanent status. Church is not something you just attend, it's something you do, it's a mission you're involved in. I don't know the magic number I said two weeks ago about how long you're in the crowd before you join the church. I'll say this it's maximum, maximum a year maximum you've been here a year you know the deal you know us you know what we're about if you're not convinced that this is a place that you can confidently join in to move the lord's work forward then we need to find you a place hear this you need to make a move you need to make a move toward membership or a move to a place where you can become a member Pastor, I have never heard anybody say, move <laughs> on to another church. But see, you need to realize something. 
I'd rather pastor a church of 40 committed followers of Jesus than 400 spectators. And I will have failed you if I give you the impression that it's okay to be a spectator. So, insert it in your program for the last time, I think, this year, is a membership application. Now, everybody see that? There's a membership application. And we've, two weeks in a row, put it in front of you. Because some of you might say, you know, Pastor, you're right. I'm, I'm, I'm going to get a, pick up a copy and then you leave. You have to go get your kids. You forget. So this is so you don't forget. There it is. We've got a number of people in the pipeline for membership as a result of the last few years. I'm very thankful for that. A number of you still need to do that. Do it today. If you've been here long enough to check us out. If not, keep coming. Keep checking this out. And then inserted in your program as well is that, as last week's, uh, skills and passions form. It's front and back. It'll take you literally five minutes to fill out. And we had that last week. Several of you turned that in, but I did not know last week that I was to say we need everybody to fill that out. Even if you filled a different one of those, one like that before, we need you to fill that one out. Everybody to fill that out. Don't fill it out now. But we do need everybody to fill out and turn it in at the desk in the lobby. The reason is we've got a new new software, a new database, and this one conforms to that. And so thank you for your indulgence, but please do that. Turn the membership applications in at the lobby desk. Turn the skills and passions forms in at the lobby desk. Some of you will not be here this time next year. I'm guessing, because you simply are not willing to commit yourself to the church. I hope that's not the case, but I recognize that it's probable. But friends, Christ did not call us to make attenders. Jesus did not say, go into all the world and make attenders. He said, go into all the world and make disciples. But here's the thing. I give those of you that are regular attenders credit because you're regular. You can fill out that membership application. You can turn it in. You can join the church. You can sign our membership covenant. Commit to regularly attending. That's what the church covenant says, that every member of our church signed regularly attending and faithfully giving. You can do that, join the church, and then the only thing that changes is your name is on a roll and the regular attendance and faithful giving don't happen. So several of you are members of our church. But you're here every now and then. Friends, what's holding you back? What's holding you down? What's getting in your way? What's more important? What's in your schedule that has priority over that? But I am often amazed at how many people in our congregation I see sporadically. But you're members of our church. I'm calling you, I'm calling you, I'm urging you to commit now. I'm going to be with God's people, learning of the Lord, praising the Lord every Sunday unless providentially hindered. One of the reasons I get so jazzed about that, get so concerned about that, is this. Church attendance is the last thing to go in your spiritual walk. I mean, think about it. Church attendance is something that people see. They either see you there or they don't. And if you can't commit to the things that people see, what's to make anybody think that you're committed to the things people can't see? 
reading the Word of God on a regular basis. Learning of Him, talking about Him, witnessing for Him. My experience is, my observation is, church attendance is the last thing to go. So if you've got a problem with that, in all likelihood there are bigger problems than that. Let me say as well. Not only should you say, I am, by God's grace, going to be there every Sunday, unless providentially hindered, but let me tell you that how long Sunday morning church is. It's two and a half hours. See, we don't have two services like a smorgasbord where you like pick the one you like. Now, overall, we do okay with our second hour. We do okay. I don't watch. I've never watched. I've never asked about who leaves after the first hour. I just know some people do. Regularly. Now, there are all the disclaimers again. There may be valid reasons for that. But for most of us, there aren't. And so it's, it's two and a half hours. In our second hour, our Discovering God hour, two weeks from today, we're having sending mailers out to the community on the Change of Heart series. That Change of Heart series will help you. But listen, you will help those people who come by being here. And it's part of what we do together. It's one of the most effective outreaches our church does. You're part of it. So I encourage you to be here. That's attendance. We talk money for a little bit. It gets worse as it goes, doesn't it? <laughs> you know, the last two years, I've asked our finance people to give us these stats. I gave them to you last week uh, about giving. And we've got an issue that we've got to tackle over the next couple of years. 48% of our congregation, members of our church, give less than $1,000 per year. That's the entire family, by the way. It's not individuals. That's the entire family. Less than $1,000 per year. If you use a tithing standard, which I encourage you to do, a 10% standard, that would mean at $1,000 a year, your family income is $10,000. Very few people who fit that category here. The average family income in Trenton is over $60,000. So at a 10% scale, that would be about $6,000 per family. I said last week, don't try to jump from 1% to 10%. Most of you can't do that. Maybe some of you can. But set this year, set next year to gradually move from 1% to 3% to 5% to be a full member of the church, a full contributor to the church. And this attendance and giving thing may well be related Because for many people, and I don't know this, I haven't gotten stats on this, this is my surmise, that when people are not here, they only give when they're here. So if you're not here regularly, you see the issue. Now you can give electronically. You can set that up on our website. We pass the plates every week, and I never see, because I'm sitting up here, and I wouldn't look if I did, who's putting stuff in and who's not, but There may be people who aren't putting anything in who may have it set up to give automatically. It's automatically sent in. That's the case for me. I haven't put anything in the plate for years. But it's automatically set up to come out. So however you want to do that, but we need to participate in doing it. Hear this, friends. Our church, God has given us a foundation at this church to do great things for him. I'm convinced of that. And I believe that we have a a God-honoring 10-year plan that we have seven years to go on. But we will not reach those goals with a crowd, only with a congregation. Our goals are godly and they require commitment to Christ and his cause, without which we cannot bring in, as part of that 10-year plan, the next generation pastor. As part of that plan, you know that my successor, I'll be meeting with him in two weeks again. The plan was to bring him on next year in 2021. 
for him to be here for several years, and then we make a transition. Our church can't afford to bring him on right now. We will not be able to send people out to church plants and church revitalizations if we don't have a fully committed congregation. We won't be able to establish the community counseling center, keep up our physical plant and campus operating well, and so on. Now listen, when you read Hebrews chapter 11 like we did at length earlier, When you read that and you see all of the commitment that went on among God's people because they believed in his character, they believed his promises, they believed it was better. You look at what they did and all we're talking about is show up and give. If we can't get that done, we're in big trouble. So we've got to be motivated to remove the hindrances. Second, Motivated to remove temptations. We throw off every hindrance, everything that hinders, and, verse 1, the sin that so easily entangles us. So you got the stuff that's not necessarily sin. You got sports commitments, you got a tea time, you got other things that are less important. That keep you from being fully engaged. You need to put those aside. They're not sin in themselves. They become sin when they become more important than things God says to do. But here we're talking about the sin. And it says, notice, the sin. And in the context of the book of Hebrews, the the sin is the sin of unbelief. The sin of lack of faith. Everything hinges on believing what you believe about God, what you believe about his promises. The sin is failure to believe in the character and the worth of God and his promises. So behind every sin, hear this, behind every last sin is a failure to believe God. There are men in this room who are sinning against God and their families on a regular basis by what you look at on your computer and on your phone. Guys, you think you're going to be able to wage that battle and win on your own? Without the accountability, the brotherhood of the community of faith, you're going to win that battle? Not a chance. Not a chance. You're a sitting duck. God says, we got to put aside the the sin. Now, how does that relate? How does pornography relate to a lack of belief? You don't believe... What I said last week, you don't believe that he is worth it. You don't believe that he satisfies more than the airbrushed image on the screen or the roar of the crowd at the game or the thrill of the drive on the golf course or the retirement years where you do little of lasting value or the career that fulfills you only because your standards are so low or the trial that you're undergoing that he's designed for your ultimate good or the swell of pride when your kid scores the the goal or makes the basket, or crosses the line first, you don't believe he's better than all that. Which don't means you don't really believe Jesus. All right. I asked for extra time. I used all of it. And forgive the grammar, still ain't done. But we're done. I'm sorry I'm not able to get to the rest of this. We're going to get back to the book of Hebrews. Or excuse me, book of Revelation next week. We're going to finish now. I have made the case as clearly as I can, dear flock. Now I'm going to ask God to do in the hearts of his people what only he can do. So we're going to conclude 
We'll conclude with our closing song in just a bit. But we're going to conclude with a closing prayer. And for that closing prayer, we're going to stand in just a moment. We're going to pray together. As we pray together, if you are here as a family and you're next to your spouse, then I encourage you to embrace your spouse. And men, take the lead. Men, take the lead. You whisper to your spouse, by God's grace, we're going to be a committed family to the Lord and his work. You take the lead. And then as we pray, you pray together. I'll be praying. You can be whispering as well. You ask the Lord to forgive whatever needs to be forgiven. You ask the Lord by his grace to help you as an individual and as a family to lay aside everything that hinders and put aside the sin that entangles us so that we don't run the race. Let's stand together. Let's pray. My Father, I'm convicted as I think about the things that I can, could, and should do for you that don't get done because I place lesser things in front of them. And so, Lord, thank you that you love me enough and love us enough to call us back to yourself, to call us back to what matters, to call us back to you. Lord, I thank you for these brothers and sisters, these friends that are here. I thank you, thank you, Lord God, that they're here to hear this. And I thank you, God, the Holy Spirit, that you're at work. And I ask you to work in their hearts as in mine. Not to harm us. That's never your end in our lives. Your end is always to help us. It's always to cause us to fix our eyes upon Jesus. The pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. And looking upon him. Looking away from other things and to him. Aligning our lives around him and what matters to him. So thank you God the Holy Spirit for doing that. And thank you Lord Jesus Christ for indeed being the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Lord, I ask you to work in the hearts of your people, men, to cause us to respond as we need to, to make the changes that need to be made at the beginning of this year, the lesser things that need to be set aside, the sin that is grieving your heart and keeping us from moving forward. And as a church, Lord, help us in 2020 and 2021 beyond. Help us to move forward as it were, as one man unified toward the godly goals that you've allowed us to establish. May we please you individually with our lives as families and as the family of God that is your church. And Lord, we will give you the praise. We'll give you the honor. We will give you the glory for you alone deserve it. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.